Fantasy football fans, the wait is nearly over. Football is back, which means FanDuel is back. You probably know my ambivalence toward football, frankly, if you're a listener to the Joe Carey podcast. Uh, but fantasy football, I continue to play, and I enjoy it uh, via the League of Leagues, of course, uh, which is my multi-sport league. And listen, DFS is exploding, and if you're going to do it, if you're going to get involved, if you're going to take a shot, if your team stinks, do it on FanDuel. Fantasy football for everyday fans. New contests starting every week. No busted season. Something for everybody. Lots of contests to choose from. And it starts at just a buck. You can pick your contest, choose your team, watch your score real time. It just makes football a lot more fun. Football's just, listen, I'm saying it. I'm going out there. It's not as good a sport as basketball. It's not as good a sport as baseball, hockey, what have you. But fantasy football remains fun. Uh, I have watched one football game in the past five years, and I continue to play fantasy football. So there you go. And in the case of FanDuel, we're talking about more than two and a half million players have won a cash prize playing fantasy sports on FanDuel. So here's how you do it. You go to FanDuel.com and you click the Join Now button and use the promo code Jonah. That's J J-O-N-A-H. New users get free entry into the NFL Sunday Million, which is more than $1 million in cash prizes, where you make your first deposit on FanDuel. Just visit FanDuel.com, that's F-A-N-D-U-E-L.com, and sign up with promo code Jonah. That's FanDuel.com, promo code Jonah. Void where prohibited. I like the little uh, caveats. Anyway, and speaking of the podcast, here we are, and this week's episode, my God, I'm doing the uh, kissing fingers motion. It's with Charlie Pierce. Charlie Pierce, a legend in this industry, a hero of mine. Couldn't be a sweeter guy, too. Uh, what a career he's had. He started off working in the alternative press for the Boston Phoenix, went on to all kinds of places, including the National, which was an all-sports newspaper that was frickin' murderer's row in the early 90s, and then, of course, joined up with Grantland, and I worked with him over there and got to meet him a little bit. And just a, a lovely human being and a brilliant guy. And what an interesting worldview. Uh, I would describe this as a, as a fun and, and uh, enthusiastic podcast. In some ways, a little, you know, we, we, got, we got into it because it's definitely a political discussion. He covers politics for Esquire. Uh, but a little bit maybe different than you might expect. I mean, Charlie comes with his own set of views, and I suppose I do too. But a lot of it has to do with just kind of the, the death of expertise or the death of interest in expertise, I should say. In America, and that's been really frustrating. And I had not read Charlie's book, uh, Idiot America, despite the fact that I'd read pretty much all his other stuff. Uh, Idiot America will make you kind of angry, but I guess in the best possible way, it'll make you informed. And, you know, I think, I hope, I hope that what we could do one day, whatever your political views are, because the spectrum is broad, and, and that makes a lot of sense. But it's come to appreciate that there are people smarter than us who should be making decisions. That you know what, if I have cancer, a doctor should treat me. And if somebody is going to run the country, then they should probably be somebody who treats it with humility and respect and is smart and uh, all of those good things. And, you know, I'll leave that for you to figure out which candidates are or not or whatever. But uh, expertise matters. And uh, we and I, he and I, Charlie and I got into that extensively a really really good chat but about sports and about journalism and about life and about growing up in Worcester Mass and a billion zillion trillion things and just talking about the industry in general too it's a privilege for me to work in the same industry as Charlie truly truly one of the great ones uh yeah quick programming notes here cbssports.com you'll find carry the 10 every friday i did the 30 which is my weekly power rankings this past monday uh sportsnet.ca i've got some stuff and then playoffs will be coming up soon so, uh, yeah, if you've got a suggestion for a city that, hey, you should totally go to this city for your coverage, go for it. I spent a lot of time in Cleveland and Toronto uh, last fall for the playoffs. And, you know, we'll see how these this year's playoff teams go. But if you have some brilliant suggestions for me in Phoenix or 
honestly, wherever, Boston, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, just hit me up. Um, hit me up on Twitter, at Jonah Carey, and uh, let me know what you think. And uh, I can pretty much call my own shot, which is cool. And so I like to kind of mix it up every single season. Uh, of course, my wow, we should all be so lucky to end up with a World Series like we did last year with Cleveland and Chicago. We'll be rooting for that no matter uh, what the case may be. Hey, guess what? More sponsors of this show. How about Indochino? You gotta love Indochino. They are fantastic. It is the best place to buy a custom fit suit. I have an Indochino suit myself. It is phenomenal. It fits like a glove. It's so great. And it's easy. They've got nine showrooms across North America. You can also uh, perform activities online and they can help you get it fitted. And uh, it is just tremendous. And, you know, here's the even better part. Use the promo code Jonah. How about a custom fitted suit? I mean, you could do whatever you want. You could put pleats in your lapels, this, and your monograms, that, and whatever the lining, you could be this, and whatever it is that you want. And all of that is $379 with free shipping. Look, I mean, none of us are flush these days. It's really, really hard. But we all have to dress decently at one point or another, whether it's a wedding, whether it's a job interview, whatever it is. $379 for a custom fit suit that's fantastic that I wear all the freaking time. My God, so worth it. Really, really good. Indochino's fantastic. Uh, they were sponsored of the podcast when I was over on Nerdist. They are here at CBS. They're terrific. Thank you so much, Indochino, for sponsoring the podcast. Get into an Indochino suit for $379 by going to Indochino.com and using the promo code Jonah. And enjoy. And you know what? Why don't you go ahead and enjoy this episode of the Jonah Carey Podcast? It is with the great Charlie Pierce. Yesterday I had Bill James on the podcast. This is uh, for me as a just a fan of good writing and having read you both for quite a while. It's very exciting for me to get to do this back to back. And we're in your uh, fantastic. Uh, I can't describe the blog cave. This office. It's the blog cave. The blog cave. It's uh, it's not your mother's basement the way that you know bloggers get. No, it is on. To. In fact, on the second floor. Uh, and I am not in my pajamas. Although <laughs> I do admit I have blogged in my pajamas before, and I have blogged in my underwear, but only in hotel rooms. So, usually the stuff that I do is, it, there's kind of a journey to it. It's, hey, yeah. tell me how you got your start and all that. Yeah. But I want to jump into the blogging thing first, and then we could backtrack a little bit, because blogging, heck, blogging wasn't a thing when I was coming up in the business. It certainly wasn't when you were. And it's such a good medium for you. And, and you know, I, I fiddle on Twitter, and so I'm just looking. And today alone, you've already banged out quite a few words and reacted instantly. You know, what was the National Parks thing? Yeah. The thing about the Texas legislature and the gerrymandering and all that yep. stuff. Your reacts are so good. Is blogging to you just the old instinct of, oh, I'm on deadline, I got the adrenaline it's exactly going? What, it's exactly yeah. what it is. Uh, you know, I followed a, a number of blogs uh, mm -hmm. through the early 2000s and really enjoyed them. And it looked like these people, the people weren't making any money, but they, yeah. you know, they're having a lot of fun. But it is. I mean, it, it's the same kind of instinct where, you know, I had 20 minutes to write a column 
after the end of Game 6 in 1986. Wow. I had already written a column, which was completely Threw in the trash. ruined. You know, Because they uh, didn't put Stapleton and, at first base. Well, yeah, that I, wasn't well no, I did not have Stapleton <laughs> at first base. But, you know, I, I had a Hearts and Flowers, They've Broken the Curse kind of column all in the Yeah. Is, is it this an unusual bunch of Do you of still people? have that somewhere? I always No, interested. no, I don't, and I wish I did. Jeff Paston has an idea for, what does he call it, like the column graveyard? I mean, think about last yeah. year's World Series, Game 7. I, we were all there. Oh, absolutely. How many times did we have to rip that up, the rain well, delay? What do you, think, what do you and... think happened on election night uh, oh in November? Do you well, know how many leads got torn that got written at three o'clock in the afternoon that were worthless by seven? Or like Dewey Truman, you know what yeah. I mean? Like there's so many yeah. of these lost columns I bet would be great. Anyway, I'm well there's also there's also a very famous Yeah. And this almost comes down to Soviet era Samizdat, a piece that Curry Kirkpatrick wrote for Sports Illustrated about Morgana the Kissing Bandit that Mark Mulvoy refused to run. Really? But that's been passed around in third and fourth generation <laughs> Xeroxes for about 30 years. And I have a copy of it somewhere. Wow. And was it, it just too uh, lascivious? Well, the opening, the lead, the opening sentence was, here they come, Morgana. Period, new graph. And then it went on for about 500 words of breast jokes. Yeah. It was just never going to get by yeah. Mark Mulvoy from St. Brendan's Parish in Dorchester. But is, it's a hilarious story. I mean, it's just, I mean, he interviewed, I mean, it's a Kirk Patrick story. He did the uh, background the it and everything. Yeah. But it's hilarious. Yeah. But it would never see the light. It wouldn't see the light of day now, let alone then. Yeah. But wow. that's the kind of thing. Yeah. There, I mean, there are, I have an, another terrible story. From right at the start of my career. By the way, whatever my questions are, if you want to segue to stories, that's all I really okay. want in the end. <laughs> so, well, I worked for the Boston Phoenix. I was covering the, when I first started in 1980. I covered the Republican side of that presidential race, and right before the election, I guess it was the end of September, beginning of October, they, gave, they sent me out to, to the Midwest, gave me a car, and I drove from Youngstown to Toledo, to Flint, to Grand Rapids, and wrote a big piece right that went, ran the weekend before the election, like the Saturday before the Tuesday. Mm -hmm. And first of all, all the same issues you heard about this election were happening in 1979. You just named those cities. Yeah, exactly. Those are the yeah, exa that's why I went there. Yeah. And uh, I, wrote a, I wrote my first lead, and this was when everybody was saying the thing was too close to call. Yeah. And I, I, I wrote my first lead. Now, the first section of the piece contained this. I will never forget the sentence. It contained the sentence, Jimmy Carter may not win elect 100 electoral votes, and the outcome is only in doubt in Fritz Mondale's Minnesota. Wow. And I killed it because I didn't have enough confidence in it. I, oh, I had too many, no! I had too many smart people telling me other. <coughs> smart too, people never know too, what they're talking about. Well, I understand that now. As a dumb person, I've come to As realize As I understand this. that. I understand yeah. that now. But I sit there now. And I think, God, if I had actually printed that, I'd have been in the Washington Post. You're, you're Nate Silver 30 Washington. years before Nate Silver. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and it was purely talking to people. But wow. I did, it, that was the one great lesson I learned in not trusting my instincts. That was that was why I learned it very young. And it served you well, I guess. Well, it's, I mean, yeah, my instincts are pretty good. And if you're wrong by following your instincts, what do you care? If you're wrong. Yeah, you've put forth your best effort. Yeah, if you're that. wrong, you know, for chicken it out, that's a different thing. Yeah. So anyway, that's my that's my my forgotten column story. Wow, that's incredible. So let's let's jump into you know your early days at the Phoenix, and the way that I want to frame this is we you know we mentioned it right before we started recording was about the Village Voice. For romantics like us, horrible news. They're not going to run the print version anymore. It's the Voice. I mean, how many yeah. great writers have come out of the Voice? How many great stories have come out of it? 
And it makes me wonder about, I don't, we'll do the macro stuff in a minute, but I'm wondering about that kind of paper, about the great independent weekly. Can that survive? You look at like the sports world, just, you know, the other day, the athletic, I work for the athletic, one of many publications I work for, yeah. blowing up, Ken Rosenthal's coming on board. They're re-engineering things. They're trying to find, this is the space that was broken. Here's our chance yeah. to come in with VC and whatever. Could you see venture capitalists? Could you see angel investors? Could you see just journalists saying, no, no, this won't stand. We need the voice to be vibrant. We need the Phoenix to be vibrant. We need the Washington so-and-so and the L.A. so-and-so. Yeah. Can we get back to the glory days of the really strong, indie, well-funded, well-supported paper? I don't, think, I don't think you're going to get any venture capitalists moving in to do a print operation. I think that's yeah. dead. Uh, I think, you know, Bezos at the this post right here in my thing. hand is, is the alternative. Yeah. I mean, in fact, it's, it's very strange. When I first started at Grantland, uh, I talked to Bill Simmons. Yeah. And Phoenix guy. Yeah. Well, yeah, but for very briefly. Yeah, I guess that's true. Uh, I was there for five years. Yeah. Uh, but we talked about how both of us shared a similar thing. We both had a pretty... Some would say inflated, I would say accurate idea of our talent. <laughs> and we were stalled. Yeah. You know, it, it, we could, I couldn't get a job. Bill was stuck doing, you know, agate at the Herald. Yeah. I found a way around the journalism school career ladder, and it was the Boston Phoenix. Bill found a way around it, and it was the Internet. Yeah. They're both – I mean, it's, it's the exact same principle. Yeah. Uh, I, went to, I went to a thing called Worcester Magazine. I wrote there for two years. They killed a piece of mine. I sold that piece to the Phoenix. I moved to Boston. That started me at the Phoenix. That was 1979. It's pretty much the same thing Bill did with Boston Sports Guy, except he did it on the web. Of course. Uh, I mean, there's a, and that's the one good thing about the web is that if you're a good, good writer, you can write. You won't get paid, but you can get noticed. Well, and that's interesting, too. I mean, I, don't, I try not to get too far into my own stuff, but I knew I wanted to be a sports writer. The two people that I looked up to in that medium, because I knew that I could, like writing for the local newspaper was a lot. I worked, for, I was in Montreal. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, Red Fisher is still still writing. He's 91 years He's old. He's 91. I saw that in a paper He's the other day. Legendary legend. The Rouge. And those, you know, you, you just murderers wrote that paper. So I wasn't going to get any traction. Speaking of which, yeah, go ahead. I'm now I'm going to digress. And I saw you tweeting about that, too. Uh, you know, uh, when, when I was working at the Boston Herald, I, you know, obviously I was writing a column. I was doing a lot of hockey, and I was doing a Montreal game. And <laughs> Rouge came to town. Yeah. And I met him, you know, because I'm, I'm a Canadiens fan. Oh, yes, you are, which we're going to talk about as well. Yeah, uh, but I, you know, I idolized Red Fisher. Red of Fisher course. was, you know, Jean Beliveau's amanuensis. Oh, my God. But anyway, so I'm sitting there, and he showed me on his computer, his rudimentary Teleram or Radio Shack or whatever it was at the time, his pre-existing, pre-written obit for Harold Ballard. <laughs> <laughs> who would not die, I think, because he didn't want to leave the, the team to any of his kids. He wanted to leave in the Maple Leafs of the Salvation Army. Remember that? For people who don't know, Harold Ballard may be the nastiest owner in the history of sports. He's way up there, for sure. Oh, no question. And very incompetent. And he died when he was like 305. I mean, <laughs> he just would not die. And I said, I asked Red, I said, how long have you been carrying that thing around in, in, your, uh, in your computer? And he said, ah, 25 years. <laughs> And I said, well, what are you going to do with it? He says, I'm going to wait till his toes curl up. <laughs> Red's a beauty, man. Yeah. Um, so, Red, yes. Just... But, you know, if you, if, if you are a fan of Lace Halby Tunnel the way I am, Red knows. Red knew everybody. everybody. I mean, just, it's, it was like it was like having, you know, Grantland Rice still be alive. And he is still alive <laughs> currently. Yeah. And he's, you know, good, fine. Yeah, um, yeah so for atypical paths, and I, I moved to the States after college. And I was working at the Gazette 
full time while I was in college, but I was doing like community news and stuff like that. I moved to the States and the internet became, I graduated in 97. So at that point you got two people. It's Simmons who's starting up and it's Rob Nyer. Rob Nyer writing for ESPN. All right, yeah. Great, different kind of thing, but and that was right in my jam. I just that's the base, that was the baseball, baseball, and I, you know, yesterday did a podcast with Bill James. Nyer was the worked with James, came on like this is all one like, and I read my first James book when I was eight, so that was the path. And then Simmons comes along, and it's like, oh, I could do this baseball statsy stuff, but also be a little bit irreverent and really yeah. cool, like Bill, perfect. But I didn't go about it by the internet. I became a stock market writer as my way around. I still got into journalism, yeah, but I got this weird job. Very analytical, crunching numbers for a decade about the stock market because I couldn't quite get to the Nyer Simmons point, and it looped back around until it got to the internet. Sure. But it was definitely a democratizing thing, and now kids are coming up now. I, I find, and maybe that's that's the way that I'll go to the next question. You talked about the idea that you can write for free. I feel like something gets lost in translation in terms of writing for free for yourself and writing for free from a very wealthy publication that says, yeah, just give us your dues and, and so forth. I mean, I, I don't know how you feel. I'm virulently against that. And I just against, feel well, against the second thing against the second. Yeah, thing. I, mean, I don't think you should write for free for people who can afford to pay you. Right. I mean, I think you can write for free for yourself. In fact, you know, you probably should. Yeah. And uh, I have, nobody's obligated to pay you for anything. Right. But I don't think you should, you should take a job where you write for free. I mean, Jimmy Breslin once famously, I forget who it was, but somebody, you know, they were talking about something, and somebody said, boy, I'd cover that for free. And Breslin said, hey, we're not the fucking Lawn Tennis Association. <laughs> get paid. Because if you don't get paid, you undermine the rest of us. It devalues everybody's right, work. Right, exactly right. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, that's one of the reasons why the Huffington Post model makes me a little nervous. Well, and there was a big story, uh, Laura Wagner at Deadspin wrote a story about SB Nation. Oh, I saw that, yeah. And SB Nation has really, you know, John Boys and Grant Brisbane, some really terrific journalists over there. Um, but they also have this model, this giant model of free or nearly free uh, work. And, of course, how much VC do they have? How much money? This is a juggernaut of a company. And, you know, you're building your your structure on the backs of people who just – whether they don't know better or whatever, and it, it really is difficult, and it makes the rest of us nervous. But forgetting about my selfish in, impulses, I want to see the 21-year-old kid who's writing about Clemson football get paid, too. I just yeah. think that it's unreasonable otherwise. No, I mean, it, 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 it's a successful business model, and, you know, this is, this is every old-school newspaper publisher's dream. We yeah. can get people to provide content for free. And if you were a riveter, by the way, yeah. you know, why don't you go rivet for free? Like, why is it that writing... Has to be this. Oh well, you should just do. It. Like I don't understand. Well, the is this profession the, just not a value? No, the, 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 the presumption is that writers are driven to do what they do, and you can you can take advantage of them. And that's been the case. They forever. already take advantage of us because we don't make doctor wages. We've already that, established that we're well, not wealthy no, no I matter mean, what. I mean, why not? You know, why not keep pushing the envelope until you see how far you can? You know, push so. these fanatics. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about growing up Boston in that era. Worcester, Worcester. Well, I'm sorry, Worcester in that era. Let's be cool. Yeah, Worcester in that era. So, um, I think we should start with the Habs thing because you and I—the first time I met you in person was at the Nerd Conference, the Sloan Conference, right? And and of course, we knew of each other. It was great, but and and we immediately started talking about the Habs. That was that that whole Grantland thing where we all knew each other, but nobody had ever met. That's right, (laughs) and that was what it was at Baseball Prospectus. By the way, I would meet. Oh, here's Nate Silver. Here's Gary Huckabee. I didn't know these guys. This online. Function right. where everybody's working satellites that yeah. Zach Lowe is here and Katie Baker's here. I loved it. Um, so, yeah, so we meet, and we immediately start in on the Habs. And what did you describe the Habs thing as an act of rebellion against your father? Like how No, did you come oh, to no, 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 no. It's okay. completely different. Uh, 
in the in my father was a high school hockey coach in Worcester. He was assistant principal. And he was also the hockey yeah. coach. And we used to watch the game of the week with Bud Palmer on on you know from you know the, the Rangers were always on TV. Yeah. From Maple Leafs Gardens or the Olympia or some other place or mm-hmm. the Forum. And at that point, the Bruins were terrible. Mm. I mean, they were just awful. The right Prior. Oh yeah, the Jerry Tapazzini era. Yeah. They were they were terrible. I don't. I'm not even sure I know who that is. And I feel he like was I one of their, He was the history. star defenseman before Bobby Orr. Okay. <laughs> uh, but and after you know the Eddie Shack, you know the Mill Schmidt. Yep. Have, you know, Which was a great team. That line, yeah. but the crowd line. Uh, but so I went to my dad and my dad my dad the hockey coach and I said. You know, I really don't want to follow these guys. What team should I watch that's fun to watch? And he pointed me to the Canadiens. Yeah. So I watched the Canadiens, and I wrote a letter to Jean Pelleville, and he wrote me a great, a nice letter back. Oh, my God. And that cemented it. Of course it was. That cemented it. And then in 1966, Bobby Orr shows up. Yeah. And I'm a freaking outcast for the next, <laughs> the rest of my life. Could you appreciate oh, God, yeah. Orr, oh. despite being a Habs fan? Oh, I mean, absolutely. I, so. I appreciate a lot of that. You know, a lot of those teams. I mean, I like the way Esposito played. I like Jerry. Oh, I like Jerry. I, mean, I saw a guy uh, at the march uh, on Saturday, mm-hmm. the, the counter-protest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he had on, you know, there were a lot of people there wearing masks. He had on an old Jerry Cheever's goalie mask with oh, stitches. Oh, that's so cool. And I got him to talk about I mean, I got him to take his... his Assuming the guy's not a, a murderer, guy by the way, you don't know age. with a hockey mask. Okay, Yeah, yeah, yeah Jerry Cheever's, every time he got hit in the face, he yeah. would draw stitches on his mask. And I saw this guy in the middle of the crowd, I said, I have to go talk to this guy. Wow. Well, I mean... So, yeah, I mean, you, how could you not appreciate Orr? It was like, it would be like not appreciating Michael Jordan. Or, is there know, one thing that stands out for you about Orr? Is there one story or whatever? I, I just, I get, you know, whenever I talk to somebody a little bit older than me who's seen one of these great players, I didn't see or I don't remember. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, was there one thing that Well, I mean, there was, a, 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 you know, half a dozen rushes. That yeah. Would, like, it would speed and puck control you never saw before. But there's one goal in the playoffs against the Rangers mm-hmm. where, I, I mean, I'm sure it's on YouTube somewhere. He does a complete 360 at the right point, and the shot starts at about, I don't know, 190 degrees. He starts the shooting motion. By the time he gets all the way around, the puck is gone and in the upper corner. Wow. And whoever the defender is, is three feet past him on his belly. He broke his ankles. No, he didn't break his ankles. The guy was diving, oh. and the just spun away from him, <laughs> and he went sliding, like, over the red line. <laughs> That's... Yeah, I mean that was the. I mean the the guy did things that nobody saw before. The guy reinvented a position. Well, and there are Russian defensemen uh, now, but I just don't. There wasn't before, and there weren't not like him. But I'm I'm, I mean, saying, I'm not sure yet. there was one like you know is Lidstrom or Subban or any of these guys. I don't know that they. I don't think they're faster than he was. When no, he, before he got hurt, he was incredible. and for his size, he was especially. incredibly fast. Yeah. yeah, he was very very fast, uh, and you know, and and tough. And he was, I mean, he was a good, not a great defensive defenseman, but a good one. And so those are your formative hockey experiences. What about formative reading experiences? Are you glomming onto the Globe at that point in that era? Well, I was glomming onto the Worcester Telegram and Evening Gazette. <laughs> so you did not, so you weren't able I know, to? No, the Globe didn't get out didn't Yeah, get out to Worcester. I mean, they did, they were they were doing suburban delivery, but it stopped in, the, you know, Dedham or, Nor- or Norway. Oh, okay. Uh, no, I was, what I was glomming onto was the Golden Age of Sports Illustrated. Yeah. Before Jenkins... You know, Roy Blunt, yeah, Curry, and that whole—that's what made me want to be a magazine writer. These guys looked like they were having all the fun. 
That was my lifelong ambition, by the way. My dad got, again, my dad got my first Bill James book when I was eight, I think the same year my first SI subscription. And I said, my, my journalistic goal, until yeah. I actually did it, yeah. was to write one article for Sports Illustrated. Yeah. One, I, that's all I wanted. And especially when Farber went there, because Farber was my sure. guy. Farber was the city columnist for the Montreal Gazette, and he was a sports columnist. And he had this way, he had this certain journalistic style. And I told Farber this in person. I met him, you know, and I, he was uh, a visiting professor when I was at journalism school at Concordia University. And he, he assigns all of us to write a story about anything. And I write it, and I do a Farber. You know, I do the lead, and then we're going to wait, we're going to wait. Here comes my call back at the end. And he looks at me, and he goes... I'm sure you're a fine young man. I want you to make your own way. Don't try to take somebody else's stuff. Didn't say it in a mean way. I yeah. just said, cultivate your own style. Don't try to do that. And I just said, oh, that's, I mean, I was crushed and I disappointed this guy. But uh, it was very good advice. And then he goes over to SI and I was just like, I mean, it was almost like a second generation because I was reading SI in the 80s. Here yeah. comes Farber makes the, the allegiance even stronger for me. Yeah, I mean, it, it was just, you know, as I said, uh, I told this to uh, to. I told this to Sally Jenkins, actually, once, yeah. that her father made Norman, Oklahoma sound like Paris in the 20s. Yeah, you, I, I think you wrote then, that in your national piece. Yeah, and then yeah. I finally went to Norman, and I realized that the only thing that was funny about it was Dan was there. <laughs> <laughs> and he wasn't there. And it was a kind of beat-up college town in the middle of the prairie. But, uh, yeah, those were the guys. The, I mean, those were – and then, you know, magazines themselves – got into what was badly called the new journalism and, you know, Willie Morris and Harper's and the Esquire guys. And, yeah. And so I was reading all of those guys mostly when I was in college and Clay Felker at New York Magazine and stuff like that and, you know, those guys. Uh, yeah. And so that was, you know, and I was reading and I was reading the alternative press, although I, they didn't have one in Milwaukee when I was there. But Does your, I mean, obviously your writing voice at this point, oh, I guess for quite a while has been, very, I mean, there's lots of things about it, but one thing is it's very blunt. You're not mincing, you're not, you're just going at the problem. You're, you're using, I, I, there was a, one in your column today, I literally had to look up, Spalpeen, I think. Yeah, was it's it? an Irish name. Yeah, I, I never heard that before. My, grand, my grandmother was a shepherd from uh, <laughs> the hills of North Kerry. Literally, yeah. she was cool. one of seven sisters who tended sheep. Wow. Uh, and came to America and became a domestic, married my grandfather. Wow. But I spent a lot, because my things were you know, things were odd at home. And I spent, my grandmother lived up the street, so yeah. I spent a lot of time with her. And she had, she had a lot, she still had Irish, but she had all this these wonderful ways of calling somebody stupid, and I just filed <laughs> them all away. And it's very funny, because I got a couple of them into the Herald when I was writing a column there. And one of the guys at the composing room was a guy named Danny Doherty. And <laughs> Danny's sideline was running money and guns to the IRA. Oh! To the point where, like, the FBI was parked outside his driveway. His mother, his wife used to go out and make him tea and give them tea. But I, I used one of them. I can't remember whether it was Amadon or, or Spalpeen or one of them. And I got by the desk and was in, and Danny was literally setting my column type. And he calls me up upstairs at my at my desk, and he says, You realize you and I are the only two f***ers who are going to know what you're talking about. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, Danny Doherty, a, Jewish fellow, correct? Oh yes, very much so. Uh, but uh, in, in any event, uh, yeah. I uh, yeah, so yeah, that gets salted in there. You know, I, I have a pop culture sewer in my head, even worse than Bill does. And you know, that's a bold, now, every, that's a bold statement. Well, I, I, I say that with love toward Bill, but yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, I, uh, you know, every now and then something will pop through, and I like using those 
because every I use those because the one comment that you get from somebody in Ireland who loved to see the word is worth 19 people saying what the hell are you talking about. This was something that I discussed with with Bill James yesterday. We were talking, I keep mentioning it, but it was obviously great. But we talk about he'd written this thing, and I forget the exact quote, but it was something to the effect of "Don't try to write for the lowest common denominator." Flatter your readers yeah. and let them go look it up in the dictionary or let them appreciate it because the people, the few people that do are going to get on such a high level. Is that, does that come natural? Were you? Yes. I mean, it was something. Were you I, doing that at 21? Yeah. Well, I didn't have to worry because the, the Phoenix audience was. Oh, yeah. Very. They were, a so forth. they were a demographic to die for. That's why. Yeah. In 1980, when I was covering the Republican side, I got my phone calls returned on the spot because they were so desperate to, to pitch themselves to our to our readers. Wow. I mean, I was in an airplane over Iowa with Jim Baker, you know, and I was a nobody. That was my first time. I was just, I'd been at the Phoenix for eight months. Yeah, you're a kid. No, but they love, I mean, so yeah, I mean, I, and I fought that battle a lot at the Herald because the presumption at the Herald was the people read the Herald were dumb. And I fought that all the time. I had, I had endless arguments with the desk saying people aren't, you know, people that will read this won't understand it. And I kept saying, some of them will, and the other ones can look it up. I mean, you know, there's a great line in, in one of the West Wing episodes, and I don't remember. It's the one right before he announces for re-election. He mm. says, our job isn't to speak to the lowest common denominator. It's to raise it. Yeah. And that's part of our job, too. I mean, a part of our part of the job of journalism is to make people smarter. It's not just to inform them. Of course. Uh, and I think if, you know, you use a word that they don't know and they look it up and they see what it means and they get a laugh out of it, that's fine. I got no problem with that. Now, I mean, not you've ended up in many. Granlin was a very smart publication. The National was about Esquire certainly is. In hypothetical, maybe it's not you. Maybe it's a twenty-five-year-old kid gets a job at USA Today. USA Today is a paper of repute, has a large circle, whatever. But it is more. It's hotel rooms and so forth. Right. I'm not besmirching. I'm just no. Saying. I understand what you're saying. So, does that person have a responsibility to write differently because it's USA Today? I think they. I mean, I think. I think the writer should. A lot, should make the desk be the people who determine whether he's writing in the voice of the publication. I don't think that's the writer's job. The writer's job is to write in his own voice. And I don't think that now that you know, obviously, wire service people would disagree with me. But I think I think a, a writer has responsibility to his readers and to his own voice. And if that's not the voice they want in your newspaper, let the desk change it. And if it's a continual brawl. You know, try to decide whether it's worth it or not, uh, or write, or find some place else you can write in your own voice. Uh, I never, I never pulled a punch. I never had second thoughts about using a word when I was at the Herald, hmm. even though the, the presumption was that people who read the Herald were stupid, and they would just adjust it if they needed. Yeah, or were they wouldn't fights? get it, or they wouldn't get it. What yeah. do I care? Yeah, I'll be back, you know, Thursday with something else for it. Hey, Blue Apron, we see you. Thanks for sponsoring this podcast, Blue Apron Fantastic, the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. Blue Apron's mission to make incredible home cooked home cooking accessible to everyone. I am terrible at cooking, and frankly, I haven't shown much of an interest in cooking. And then we started getting Blue Apron, and they're rad, man. Like even a schmolio like me can do it. They're terrific. All the ingredients come; they're fresh. They're in these individually sealed packets, so it's just so really, really easy. Here's your protein. Here are your spices. Here's the starch, and you just put it all together. And from the time that you open up the box, the time that it's on your plate, and I mean cooking and everything, it's less than an hour. It is super duper doable. If you've got kids, get your kids involved. Do that. If you want to make it something with your partner, if you want to make it something with 
your derelict, terrible friend, whatever it is you want to do, or maybe you just want to do it for yourself, Blue Apron is terrific, very, very great. And, and you know, you got to like the ethical element of it too. Seafood sourced sustainably under standards developed in partnership with the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch. Beef, chicken, and pork come from responsibly raised animals and produce is sourced from farms that practice regenerative farming. How about that? Featured upcoming meals, summer vegetable and egg panese with Calabrian chili mayonnaise and caprese salad. Amazing. Soy glazed pork and rice cakes with bok choy and marinated green beans. Skillet vegetable chili with cornmeal and cheddar drop biscuits that I mentioned that Blue Apron is also excellent for vegetarians, if you happen to be a vegetarian. And also garlic, butter, shrimp, and corn with green bean salad and roasted purple tomatoes. And you'll see as you go into fall, get into squash and uh, things of that nature, there's winter foods or spring foods. I mean, they keep it fresh and whatever is in season. And it really, really is really good. I, 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 again, I'm just so bad in the kitchen and Blue Apron makes it something that is doable. So... Here's what you do. Check out this week's menu. Get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash Jonah. That's J-O-N-A-H. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash Jonah. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Hey, it's football season. And football season, it's fantasy football season. You could be a football fan or not. Am I a football diehard? No. Do I play fantasy football? Yes. <laughs> Is DFS uh, super fun? It certainly can be, and FanDuel makes it fun and easy and accessible and cool. So you want to dip your toes in a little bit? Sure, go for it. You can check out what's going on. It's fantasy football for everyday fans. New contests start every week. No busted season, something for everyone. Lots of contests to choose from. They literally start at a dollar. Just pick a contest, choose your team, watch your score real time. It is a lot of fun. More than 200, uh, sorry, 200. That'd be a lot. We're not there yet. Two and a half million players have won a cash prize playing fantasy sports on FanDuel. Sign up today and here's how you do it. You go to FanDuel.com, click the Join Now button, and use the promo code Jonah. That's J-O-N-A-H. New users get free entry into the NFL Sunday Million, which is more than $1 million in cash prizes. When you make your first deposit on FanDuel, that's FanDuel.com, F-A-N-D-U-E-L.com, and sign up with the promo code Jonah, J-O-N-A-H. FanDuel.com, promo code Jonah. Enjoy. Uh, I do want to talk about the National a little bit just because sure. it was such, a, such an interesting experiment. And I encourage people to go and read. It was Charlie's first piece for Grantland. It's the, there's so much irony wrapped in this thing. <laughs> Grantland rest in peace. The National yeah, rest in peace. I'm, and, I'm, I'm really good at killing things. Well, and the, and the you know. I like to tell people that I was the third oldest person at Grantland. You were the oldest. Right. Bill was the second. Bill was oldest. second, yeah. I was the third. I'm uh, not that old. No, and then but everybody else was, was They were kids. And by the <laughs> way, they're all monster superstar. You know, Rembert and Katie and all these yeah. people and Danny Chow, they're all fantastic. Yeah. But um Robert Mays. But um it, it, it that had to be such an interesting idea that the, the way you described it in the column was Whatever you needed, they were going to give it to you. Yeah, I mean, as long as the as long as the money was there, we could do anything. It was astonishing. It was, in terms of the logistics and infrastructure to being a magazine writer, I will never have another job like that. I mean, yeah, GQ was close. GQ, GQ, the Hondi Nast had a lot of nice mm-hmm, money, mm-hmm. but it wasn't anything like the National. I mean, you could just ask for stuff and they give it to you. Yeah, you're sending people out to the Buster Douglas fight in, in Japan. And they sent Sam Donnellan to Tokyo for a week. And you went to a fight where there were like 12 of you there? That you was said? Douglas Holyfield. Yeah, Douglas that Holyfield. Was, yeah, that was the one. That, that was that was, a, that was a hell of a night. That was a night that 
all of our high all of our high tone boxing writer or boxing or high tone feature writers had never written running off a sports event before. And I, I had, so I had to do, I missed, I mean, it was an 18 minute fight and I missed the punch because I was down sending, <laughs> you know, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was a noble, it was an, a noble experiment badly done. Uh, I, I wouldn't trade it for the world though. I mean, as we said, I think Johnette said it in that same, in the oral history, you know, get, get another millionaire with 150 million. We'll be back in a minute. Uh, it's newly relevant now though, which is interesting. The building that has gotten Jared Kushner in all the trouble in New York. Yeah. It's 666 Fifth Avenue, which is where the National was. Wow. First of all, perfect that it's 666. Hey, our IDs didn't say the National. Our IDs said 666. Amazing. I don't have it. I don't have it here, but I have it at home. Yeah, you've got literally everything. I mean, I have, my, I have, my, yeah. I have, I have my picture. You know, it's a picture, and it's my name and my signature, and all it says is 666. And I made a crack about that the first day I walked into the building. Uh, but that's the building that's in the news now because Jared Kushner owns it. It feels like a little bit of potential karma, though. We'll see. We'll oh, see. I, oh, I guarantee, I guarantee you there are, there are evil spirits in that place. <laughs> uh, when evil Mexican spirits. <laughs> because they were the owners of the, the paper. Brujo, the Brujo. Yeah, they yeah. kept it going for Yeah, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Emilio Lascaraga. The late Emilio Lascaraga. Who you met in person. I went met down him to... in Mexico City when I made the mistake of making my own hotel reservation. <laughs> and uh, Emilio's, the younger Emilio, his son-in-law, who ran at that point ran Univisa Sports? Called me in my room and called me on yeah called me in my room and said I'm sorry where are you staying and I said I was staying at the Sheraton or something he said no no this will not do and he said your car will be downstairs in 20 minutes so I go to the, and it takes me to this freaking suite oh you know I can't remember it was a King something hotel in yeah uh, and so yeah he was I did I have in fact met the publisher. I don't know the new Esquire publisher, but I have met a publisher of every magazine, of every publication I ever worked for. That's cool. Including Rupert Murdoch. Wow, what was that like? I interviewed him for GQ. I was doing a thing about how this was right when Fox got the NFL. Yeah. For the first year. And about how Rupert Murdoch was was building Fox Sports into an empire. And he gave me a great quote, I remember. Uh, You know, I asked him if, if he thought the NFL owners were ready for somebody like him who was willing to pay incredible amounts of money despite what those incredible amounts of money might do to the salary scale and he said i'm here to build a network i don't care if a quarterback makes another 10 million dollars and i thought to myself oh you do not know who you've invited into the tent here <laughs> and he, i mean he actually had, it, the impact wasn't that great but still i mean yeah i mean you know he's, he did change the nfl he forced you know he forced nbc out of it for a couple of years and mm-hmm. uh and now he's got you know he's got i don't know if the cable network's making him any money or not and i don't think he's really doing much now uh, but, uh, yeah, so I, I mean, all my publishers, I'm very proud of that. Um, we got to get into a little bit of Grandland, I feel like. Sure. The National happens, and Grandland is being built, and Grandland is not the same blueprint, obviously. You're not picking off the most prominent 47-year-old journalist. It's no. a younger approach and all that. Um, it, let's say that you were tasked with the charge of, I'm going to build anything that I want to build. Does one of those approaches strike you as better? Should it be a hybrid? If you were trying to build your whatever, your all-star team, your ideal staff of, of, of sports folks, or maybe any folks, any types of journalists, how would you go about it? Um, I think I would mix it up. I think I certainly, I would hope, 
And one thing you have to give Bill, he had an incredible eye for talent. Oh, yeah. And undiscovered talent. And so did Dan Fearman and, like, the, yeah, the editors all those were guys, really all those good. Guys did. Yeah. Uh, I would hope I would be able to, I'd probably, first thing I'd do probably is be hire Fearman, Fearman and say, go find people. Oh, yeah. Because I don't know these folks, but you. And then Sean Fennessy eventually became sure. that kind of guy with a skill set. I mean, really, really good. Yeah. And, Mallory Alden. You know, I would do that and I would, I would cherry pick a couple of people who are maybe not my age, but the generation behind me. Yeah. I mean, I mean, just for. It's old, a different perspective. Old, old heads of institutional memory, basically. Yeah. And and to stop, I think, the natural impulse of younger guys to believe that X, Y, and Z is unprecedented. Right. Very few things are. Right. The current presidential administration is unprecedented. Oh, we're going to get to that. But, uh, you know, very few things are. And uh, if you can, you know, if you've got people there who can talk with, with younger people and say, yeah, okay. Yeah, this is really quite extraordinary, but let me tell you about X, Y, and Z. Yeah. I mean, I loved, when I first started writing for Phoenix on politics and for the Herald on sports, I loved hanging out in the bar with the older heads, with, you know, when I first traveled with the campaign with Broder and Dave Nyan and Marty Nolan and, and, and Whitcover and those guys, and I just sit at the bar and listen to them. Yeah. And when it came to sports, it was, you know, Pope and, and you know, some of the older New York guys. And, yeah. And 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 uh, uh, Jerome Holtzman and those guys, I loved hanging around. Jerome Holtzman, who literally invented the save. Yes, I mean, like that's the kind of influence. I don't love the save, but I find that to be that's something. There's a legendary story about Jerome, of course, that he had Please. a young sports editor one time came in, and he used some phrase in his column, and the guy said he's going to strike it out because it's a cliche, and Jerome said, "But I invented it." <laughs> I can't remember what it was. It was a phrase. That's when you know that you're feeling yeah. your own oats. Yeah, That's fantastic. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but but I you know by it, yeah. it's like yeah you know, I always I always tell the story about uh, James Naismith was the basketball yep. coach at the university at Kansas University, Canadian. the only one with a losing record by the way. And I just had this wonderful vision of the Jayhawks playing a game, and the referee blows his whistle and calls a Kansas player for traveling, and Naismith stands up and goes, "No, it's not. No, sorry, <laughs> it's not." I, I have the rules right here in my back pocket, <laughs> and I wrote them, and that's not true. What do you do? You tee up James Naismith? <laughs> Naismith throws a chair. Yeah, Bobby absolutely. Knight does it absolutely. 70 years later. Like, I've done that throw already. him out? I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's the great thing about basketball, by the way, is it has one identifiable creator. Yeah, baseball's very nebulous. And football, too, really. Hockey. I, mean, I don't think there's a hockey origin. Oh, God, though. no. Hockey probably started with lacrosse. I mean... I think it might have started with, like, the Métis Indians or something. Yeah. I mean, probably, yeah. yeah. You know, 40 on 40 games of, something. you know, bloodthirsty shinny on the <laughs> Isn't all shinny bloodthirsty? Isn't all shinny bloodthirsty? Yeah, but I figured it was kind of tribal back then. Yes, yes, literally. But, okay, um, so no, the, the National was a, you know, there are all, most of the stories you've heard about the National are absolutely true. That's the first thing you have to remember. Uh, and, but it was a way to break out of, for me, it was a way to break nationally. For a lot of other guys, it was a way to break out of daily newspapers and see. You know, it was just a, it was a, it was a great experiment to be part of. It really, it freed me. It got me noticed nationally. It led directly to my work at GQ and then Esquire. Wow. And where I am now, because I met David Granger. David Granger was my editor at the National and stopped being my editor last March, or last February. Holy cow! Almost thirty years. Yeah. Wow. I find. He wow. was the he was the the, the sub editor. Rob Plater was the editor yep. of the main event, but David was the one who did a lot of the grunt work. Uh, well, I'm interested too in the crossover, and obviously you had started. You know, you're doing stuff for the Phoenix, and it's on the political trail, sure. and, and then you're coming back to sports and so forth. But I mean, I don't think I've made any secret about the fact I've done stuff before, and, yeah. and if you, I 
might want to jump to politics. Uh, any advice you could proffer about understanding that you didn't come up specifically as a sports writer, but let's say that maybe if your reputation is, has become bolstered by sports, if you made your name at the national, how do you go to a place like GQ and really just crush it on the political beat? How do you, well, I, you know, I make that transition? I didn't really start writing political stuff for magazines till Esquire. I was okay. pretty much pigeonholed as a sports writer at, at, at uh, GQ. I wrote a couple of, like, I did a Dan Rather profile. Yeah. But I didn't do, you know, I, I mean, it, at, at Esquire, I did Bill Bradley, and I did, you know, a couple of campaign stories, and I did a couple of Bush administration stories. I did a lot of, like, I did John McCain was one of my first... Profiles, but I didn't really do that at GQ. Right. Uh, and I started writing online. This is another very bizarre story. I started writing online at Jim Romanesco's old site. Oh, wow. And Jim Romanesco, now, I, you know, as Bill Cosby, as the late, uh, as the late human idol Bill Cosby once put it, I told you that story to tell you this one. Mm-hmm. When I was a senior at Marquette University, uh, I was one of the editors of the student paper, and one of my jobs was to be hero, role model, and all-around bad example to the freshmen sophomores. One of my freshmen was a young man from Walworth, Wisconsin, named James Romanesco. Wow. Yep. Go figure. And he did exactly the same thing I did. He decided he wasn't going to go up the career ladder. He started out. He started out freelancing. He wrote for. Milwaukee Magazine, and then he came up with this idea, yeah, which turned into the town meeting of American journalism. And I started writing letters to his letters column, and I don't remember if it was the it was the two thousand conventions my wife went to, and she told somebody that she was my wife, and he said, "I love the letters he writes to Romanesco," <laughs> and she told me that, and I thought, "What the fuck is going on?" In this <laughs> I'm writing these things for free in like 10 minutes. And <laughs> I'm getting more, you know, I'm getting more attention than I got, you know, writing magazine. It was weird. That was my first indication. And my introduction to the Internet uh, was Jim Romanesco's letters column. And then I started re- contributing once a week to Eric Alterman's old alter- altercation blog. And that also was, a, was my way into the Internet. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it, that was a very, very bizarre thing. I just, I was always interested in it. I always had political opinions. I, I would slip the occasional sharp political jab in my yep. sports columns to Herald, and nine times out of ten it would get through. And, you know, I started writing for, I did, I did a little work for the American Prospect. And, yep. Uh, so. It just I, sort uh, of evolved? What? It just sort of evolved in terms oh, of It was always aspect? there. I mean, I, I spent five years writing it at the Phoenix. Right. And, and then I became so a daily sports back to writer. It. Yeah. So it was never really gone. It was just, in, it was, you know, it was just in, you know, in cold storage for a while. Fair enough. Uh, one more, I want to ask you one more Grantland question, which is just simply when you got into this thing and you sort of took the, you know, lay of the land, granting that neither of us were in the office yeah. and so forth, did you think to yourself, oh, this is the national all over again? This is going to flame, it'd go burn bright and then flame out? No, I didn't think so. And I'll yeah. tell you why. I thought, I mean, I knew that, that Bill being Bill, that, you know, the relationship with ESPN was never going to be hearts and flowers. Fair. I said, I'm not worried about it because even if it goes bad with Bill, ESPN will keep it alive just to prove it could do it without him. I thought that would be the corporate ego. That is a fair hypothesis. And I felt much more, I, I mean, always felt on edge about the national. I, can't, I mean, I waited for the other Well, there's so much money being spent. Well, I mean. The, the, I wasn't making $900,000 a year at Grandland, so we were no, okay. No, yeah. but I mean, I, you know, that, I think I wrote about this in the Grandland piece. 
when Mike Lupica went back to the Daily News, they had that Friday one-liner column he yep. was doing. Yep. What he calls shooting from the lip. Which Larry King is pretty much all the same. Well, right? yeah, he started with Jimmy Cannon. Right, of course. But uh, they wanted me to do it because I had done it fairly regularly in the Herald. Yep. So Frank DeFord called me, and he said, look, we want you to do this you know, this column. And I said, well, I'll do it, Frank, but I'm going to need more money. So he says, well, how much do you need? Believe, now, remember, this is one column a week, 800 words. I quoted a figure that was insane. I don't even remember what it was. But it was ridiculous. And he said, okay, you start Friday. I could have asked him for a Mercedes. It would have been in my driveway. I hung up the phone. I turned to my wife. I said, Margaret, the good news is we're making more money a year. Yeah. The bad news is there's no way this thing can survive. If they're doing this kind of shit, there's no way that somebody's going to catch on sooner or later. Right. And they did. But... Uh, no, so no, I, I I was much more confident in the survival of Grantland than I was ever in the survival of the National, hmm. because it was an ESPN product. Places like ESPN don't like to admit failure. Yeah, uh, I certainly didn't think that they would destroy something simply out of peak, and I think that's what they did. Uh, and uh, I don't know that I'll ever forgive them for that. Yeah. But I was much more confident in survival than I ever was for the National. Hmm. Yeah. Um, okay, we're going to jump into politics, and okay. we're not even going to start with Trump. I'm, I'm trying to build up the courage to get there. Uh, you've said the Democrats have had some interesting times. There's a couple of things, and, and the first thing was today, yesterday, you tweeted something to the effect of, I'm going to botch it, but essentially here's a big juicy steak that the Democrats get, and they're going to complain about the drapes in the restaurant. Yeah, or they're, they're going to burn the house down. Burn the house down. Sauce. So are you saying that it's, Here's this guy, this bumbler of a president and the golden opportunity. Are the Democrats screwing up because they're not glomming on to one principle like whatever, health care, not having one uniting factor? Is it that they're squabbling? Is they're it squabbling. That's what's driving me crazy. Uh, I don't care who you voted for in the 2016 primaries. Covering the 2016 Democratic primaries is one of the most deadening experiences of my life. I never really? went through that. The, the, you didn't get the, the Bernie the, energy out of the, it. I got well, yeah. Except it, then it got redirected to all kinds of ill feeling. Yes. And and you know counterproductive nonsense. Uh, you know, I, I, it's just by the end of it, I was so sick of both those people. Yeah. And I was so sick of their followers. I was mostly sick of their followers. The followers. I wasn't, you know, really sick of the two individuals who I still think are, are you know, certainly light years beyond the incumbent. But I was just so sick of the dynamic of that of that uh, campaign. Uh, that I was glad it was over. Uh, but I think that, you know, I think for 40 years, the Republicans have building up have been building up this reservoir of crazy and profiting from That's it. That's your next book, Reservoir Crazy. Prof profiting of it, yeah. off of it, and not caring what it did to the country. And it finally produced this swamp monster. Yeah. And I think the Democrats have been very slow and very neglectful in their fundamental duty as the other major political party of beating the crazy out of the Republicans, of making the Republicans own the crazy that, that on which they off which How do you do that? I don't know. Hmm. And it's certainly the opportunity's gone now. Yeah. But I think a, a primary thing for any opposition party to do right now is to help everybody else save the country from this crazy person. Even if it's Ryan or McConnell or whatever. Well, they're not going to do it. See, that's okay. the thing. I so mean, who is going to do it then? I don't know. That's the thing. Yeah. Um, they still want their lower taxes. They want the tax cut. Yeah. That's all they want. And then they'll get around to doing it. Ryan whatever. is not some... Uh... And they're not going to get that either, by the way, because he's going to do something to screw that up. But in any event, yeah. 
there's an affirmative obligation for the Democrats to get their shit together right now because they're the other force. We're not going to have a third party. No. You can't have a third party in this country without proportional voting, and I wish you as much luck as Lanny Guinier had putting that through. <laughs> uh, so it's, that's the only vehicle. Mass demonstrations in the street are great, but if they're not accompanied by political action that scares people, you know, I mean, they're, they're nice spectacles. Uh, but there's an absolute obligation right now to defang this presidency until it can be eliminated. So, because there's too much damage going on. It's brutal. So, you know, could that be uniting under one banner? Could it be universal health care? Could it be going for a signature thing? Or does it, because the Democratic Party, yes, it's squabbling, but I'll try to take a slightly charitable view. Maybe it's nuanced. Maybe Cory Booker's in the pocket of pharmaceuticals, but he has a good idea. Maybe Bernie's a socialist, but he's brought it to the left flank of the Democratic Party. That's fine. Hillary had talent why, as a politician in some ways. Why everybody can't think like that is beyond me. Yeah. Hillary Clinton ran on the most progressive She did. Platform. She wasn't some neoliberal. What is this neoliberal business? Put together by a major party in my lifetime. Of course. The reason it was was because Bernie pushed her there. Yes, that's right. That's now, fair. why can't both sides just say, all right, that's the way it's supposed to work? Of course. Let's go. They can't. I don't know why. I do not know why. Does that come from the DNC? Does it come from the supporters? It comes from the supporters. It comes from... Uh, you know, a faction of, of irreconcilables. Uh, it comes from the DNC, which was remarkably feckless under Debbie Wasserman. I would Schultz, even go so far as to say damaging. Utterly worthless yeah. as a chairman. Uh, but it's, you know, I mean, it's, 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 you know, it's unfortunately an entire panoply of problems coming to a head at a very critical time for the country. Where it, it you know, your little dynamic right there is all that needs to happen. Yeah. We're all helping each other. Yeah. And when we get in there, we'll decide what's the best way to get the single payer, what's the best way to, you know, stimulate the infrastructure, or whether we need a new WPA. You can't just say, we need a new WPA, and if you don't agree with me, I don't have anything in common with you. That's just stupid, and that's dangerous. Uh, and I'm afraid that's what's going to happen. I mean, they have. I mean, and again, the Democrats have to organize beyond. They have to be on Washington. The, what's the damage? The real damage is being done in the states. New, new, uh, North Carolina with the, I've, the gerrymandering everywhere. You just wrote a great piece about it, yeah. talking about Texas. Texas keeps failing, but on the state level, North Carolina is basically trying to ensure an insurmountable. You know that even if it goes fifty-five, forty-five in one direction, it doesn't matter because they've got all the. Well, that's what anyway. I mean. I read a that's poll. happening nationally too. I read a, I read a poll the other day that said the Democrats could get 56 percent of the total votes in the two thousand eighteen midterms and forty-five percent of the seats in the House. I literally that's one of my questions. That's yeah. absurd. But how that's, do you fight that if you, one you, party has a vested interest in keeping it that way, and now you've stacked the Supreme Court because of the bullshit Merrick Garland stuff? Yeah. How do you reverse it? You will let you. I mean, you. You have to win landslides. You flip state legislatures, and then you then you redistrict. And it feels like the Democrats, the Republicans, whatever you want to say about them, are disciplined. They know that they have to go after the states. They do. The Democrats, even when Obama was in power, even when the Democrats were riding high, they didn't care about Indiana, North Carolina. They flipped state legislatures in two thousand and six, and then didn't follow through. They flipped Montana, which hadn't had a Democratic state legislature in forty years. They got the they got both houses. Yeah. Uh, and it then they, the, 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 the 2000, the, I, I'm fascinated because I consider the 2006 the lost landslide. 
it was every bit an ass ki- as much of an ass kicking as 2010 and 2014 were. Yeah. But it was nothing was done with it. Uh, you know, the, the, Demo- uh, the Democrats didn't produce. I mean, I guess, yes, it, it made Barack Obama more possible. Yeah. But in terms of a lasting change, the way 2010, 2014 were, no. I mean, it, it was, it, it was the, the opportunity was gone. Well, good luck getting an abortion in many states. Well, and, that, and that's that's a function of this, you know, that this is what it comes down well, to. Because I mean, you can't do anything at the federal level, so they're just chipping away and chipping that's away. That's exactly right. That's the strategy. Yeah. Uh, and what's left right now, the only real pushback is coming from federal judges. Yeah. And within, you know, four or five years, you may not have that. No. These guys are going to do it. Well, the Supreme Court's already flipped. Yeah. District courts could be next. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's... Um, it's a dark place, and it, it requires a vigorous and a cutthroat opposition, and we don't have that yet. And I think it better come together pretty soon because there's, there is a point of no return on this stuff. Yeah. And I think we're approaching it. Well, I mean, stripping away the many provisions of the, of the Voting Rights Act, I mean, that, that was devastating, you know, and, and we can't the one get two, that the one, two punch, the one-two punch of Citizens United in Shelby County. Was yeah, the worst two, uh, the worst two Supreme Court decisions for the freedom to vote since Plessy Ferguson. I mean, it just it, yeah, they, they in, in combination those two were just dreadful. And and, and I think you and I shared uh, um, uh, an appreciation for the lawyers, guns, and money. It's maybe my favorite blog. I, I love that's a good, yeah. Scott Lemieux and those guys are great yeah. and gals. And they just do. There, oh, many of them have our legal minds. They do such a good job of breaking it down. And uh, as a Canadian, I mean, I understand why they're going after voting rights because it entrenches the Republicans yeah. and so forth. It's just inconceivable to me that it would ever happen in Canada. That even if Stephen Harper was riding high for twenty years, they would never do that. They would keep it. You want to vote? Vote. If you vote, if you think that you want to vote conservative, Mazel Tov. I don't begrudge you. That's totally fine. Yeah. This is a systemic way of just juking the system. Yeah, and it's 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 a systemic way of juking the uniquely American system, right? Which contains true democracy and so forth. Well, not just not not just that, but you know, uh, the people of Wyoming having the same number of senators as the people in California, right? Well, you know, and and the electoral college and which, the, the electoral which college. is some bullshit. Which obje- well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's and I would say that it was bullshit. I, I, even though I would not have been happy with the, you know, yeah, had Trump won by three million votes and Hillary. I, I still would think it's unfair. I'd be happy with the outcome, yeah. but it just doesn't make any sense to me. No, it, it, it was, it was a, a, a mechanism put in place to get the Constitution ratified and to guarantee the power of the slave states. Yes! The free states. We got rid of slavery. What are we doing? Yeah, I, you know, I, Tradition's not always good. No, I, 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 I am right with you on getting rid of these. You know, but again, you can't do it now because the people will say late. you're only doing it because you lost. Uh I don't know. I mean, that's. I mean, there are so many different. There are so many inside straights that Democrats have to draw to right now. That's. I mean, it's just genuinely. Well, smart. and they're arguing about forget Bernie Hillary. Now they're on to Ellison versus Perez, and who's oh, and who's Kamala the true Harris. Slytherin versus the the Gryffindor? Like, yeah. what are you doing? Kamala Harris is you know. Kamala Harris is a fine and talented politician. Yeah, I mean, why are you going got, after she's her? Got some, she's got some prosecutor problems, as all sure, prosecutors do. Sure, of course, yes. But it's you know it's 2017. You don't even know if she's going to run. Yeah. Oh, they're going to go after Jill and Brand. They're going to go after everybody. Yeah. I mean, and, and I don't see, you know, again. I don't mind if you're vetted. That's fine. Yeah. 
But you're, you've never been trying to kneecap each other. But to eliminate, you know, somebody because of one vote or one, you know, Cory Booker is in tight with Wall Street. Why? Because he's the senator from freaking New Jersey, and 900,000 people who work on Wall Street <laughs> right. vote for him. Yeah. I mean, it's like being against, you know, ethanol and being Chuck Grassley. This idea of ideological purity, too. I mean, you it's the best outcome you can get. Look, Obama was, I mean... You know, he made mistakes. Well, maybe whatever your sure. platonic ideal, maybe it's Republicans, your platonic ideal, but nobody is yeah. perfect. You just you do the best you can, and and we're just we're get, it's getting lost you've there. You've got one part. You've got one party that's completely out of its mind, and another party that doesn't want to make, you know, is complicit in, you know, hiding the crazy uncle in the attic, and that's not tenable for much longer. So you've got voter suppression, but on a basic level, voter turnout is still depressing in this country compared to right. a whole bunch of other democracies. And even if, let's say that the Republicans succeed in suppressing people of color and college students and the, the people, fine. We're still talking about 46% of the population voting, whatever it is. We should be able to get to 60, 70. How do you get people motivated into democracy? Let, maybe that's the elemental well, question. Well, I, mean, I mean, and I don't have an answer. Yeah. But you've, I mean, I remember when the 18-year-old, when the voting age was dropped to 18. Yeah. My first presidential election was 1972. 57% of the people under 25 voted. Wow. That has sunk like a stone ever since. Yeah, young people are supposed to be the apathetic ones. Yep. But in the, well, the, at that point, there was a war and a draft. Yes. So yes. that concentrated the mind very... So, so kids can't understand the implications of elections on their Nobody own Nobody can. Nobody understands. People have been encouraged to look at their government as an alien entity. And that problem, Congress all sucks, no matter who's in charge. Politics sucks. Politics no sucks. Matter, no matter who's involved in yeah. it. And government is, you know, Ronald Reagan said government is the problem. That was a historical pivot in the United States because in the United States, government is us. Yeah. First three words of the Constitution. It's us. We are responsible for its successes. We are responsible for its failures. If we put morons in office, we're responsible for putting morons in office, and we're responsible for what they do. That has been broken down. And, you know, our civics education is appalling. Yeah. Uh, our, invent, our, our, our sense of connection between our vote and what happens is appalling right now. And that's to the profit of the people who are making, I mean, that, people are making hay out of that right now. And I'm afraid we're all going to wake up some morning and it's going to be a different country. And people are either going to not want to face how it got that way or not know. And I don't know where we are then. Uh, but, you know, you've got to find a way to get people to re-engage as a self-governing political commonwealth. Otherwise, we're just, you know, Australia with good, you know, more beachfront property. <laughs> I like no. that. And, and, you know, setting up for this, and I hadn't read it in America, so I, I bought it. I, got, I think I read the first 175 pages the last couple of days. It's You know, and even the movie Idiocracy, which is just a movie, you know, it's a Mike Judge movie, it's a silly little vehicle, but... I wouldn't be happy if The Rock ran against Trump and beat him. That wouldn't make me. By the way, you're laughing. I don't. Kid Rock is everybody named Rock. Chris Rock. I don't. Maybe they're all running. But how do we make our? Tim the Rock reigns. Rock. Okay. Well. Okay. He'd be fine. Yeah. <laughs> I might have a position in cabinet. Excuse I don't me. know. Hall of Famer gave Jonah Carey a shout out. Tim the Rock reigns. Very nice. I. I I, I mean, between, I deflect, between, but it's very between nice. Tim Raines and you and Claire Smith getting into the Hall of Fame. Claire, wasn't that, that wonderful? Was fabulous! I'm Holy so cow! Claire's one of my oldest pals. Uh, people don't know Claire Smith is the first African American woman to win the Spink Award, which is the highest award that you can win as a baseball writer, right. and like the loveliest person. Oh. And, and when when 
they announced, because I was at the BBWA meeting where they announced it in the room. Yeah. And we're all there. We all gave her a standing ovation. We didn't do that. No disrespect, but we didn't do it for Tracy Ringlesby yeah. or whoever. But it was fine. And I, I'm outside the room, and I just cried for like oh. five minutes. I yeah. could not stop crying. I have a great photo. It's not here, but I have a great picture of, of Claire and I talking at Red Sox Spring Training in Winter Haven. When I first started... In 1986, before I started writing the sports column, they put me on the road with the 86 Red Sox. Oh! So I did most of the year. Fun! From spring training on. Because I had never been around a baseball team. I'm not a big baseball guy. But if you write a column in, in Boston, you have to know something yeah. about it. So the editor of the Herald put with me on. Dewey Evans, the most underrated player ever. Well, I mean, you know, that, was a, you know, that was a bizarre team. And then, of course, we don't want to get into how that <laughs> year ended. But I have a great picture of Claire and I in Winter Haven talking. Uh, but, uh, hey, listen. We're going to, the celebrity element is not going away. No. I mean, it's... Well, it's, because we're not educated. Well, not just that, but it's, it's, it's a way to win now because we're educated. Political consultants aren't stupid. Uh, you know, I don't know that anybody can energize, can build up the amount of energy for... to... to do what Trump did. Yeah. I don't think, you know, I, mean, I don't think The Rock has that in him. Yeah. Uh, I don't think, you know, who knows what. Michigan. Well, Trump is just pure id. Like, yeah, well, not, that's just it. I don't, think, I, don't, I don't think there's anybody I assume The Rock has some sort of empathy. Yeah, I don't think there's anybody, anybody else out there like him. I yeah. Mean, the ability to channel the anger and fear that has been, and the racism and xenophobia, yeah. that has been critical to the rise of the modern conservative movement, which is the only animating force in the Republican Party right now. Trump's ability to do that and to focus it incredibly sharply on anybody he aimed it at. I don't think anybody else has that. I, I may be wrong. Right. It's not what Jesse Ventura did in Minnesota. He did not do that. He ran as an alternative to two really bad candidates uh, and then lost interest in the job, which was too bad because I think he really wanted to do it. Uh, I don't think anybody else will do that. I don't think anybody else is shameless and angry and twisted enough to do it. I could be entirely wrong about that. But not to weaponize it the way Trump did. Well, and he's going, you know, we, I'm going to use the scare quotes about the economic anxiety. Economic anxiety can be a substitute for blatant racism. But it is absolutely the case that there are swaths of the population who had union jobs in 1977 who can't get them right, now. Right, but those are the same people I talked to in 1979. Why did they turn out en masse to vote for a con man this time? For a Republican. I mean, Repu for, when there's a lot of voted for Reagan. And, and sure. I will agree But is that, that identity politics? Because eco economically, none of these are, I don't care what Republican you are. If you run as a Republican, you're not helping them. No, I, 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 I think that's right. I think in Reagan, at Reagan's era, there was, a, there was serious economic trouble in the country. Of course. Which, which Reagan then made worse. Right. So that was sort of understandable. Uh, Maybe I, we just need strong unions again. We, yeah, but we, you know, where how, are we going to get there? How are you going to get there? Exactly. Even Democrats we now vilify desperately unions. need strong unions. Of course, there's no other path to a viable middle class that I've ever seen in this country. You could graduate from high school and get a manufacturing job in 1977, no problem. Right. And you can't. You just you, can't. You can and I understand that manufacturing is not where it was, but maybe we unionize tech. Maybe we unionize publishing. Maybe we unionize all of it. Yeah. You. I mean. I mean, that, and that's, you know, that, again, is a deliberate political strategy dating back to the late 1970s. And the Republicans are so disciplined, they crushed, pro are, you know, the, the left has no confidence in union either. The Republicans have succeeded in creating messages that transcend their own party to where the other party says, oh, yeah, those guys are full of crap. Oh, of course we're going to squabble with each other. Yeah. They, they've won. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, there's a, I mean, there's a lot to be said for that. Uh, uh, I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm talked out on this. No, no, that's fine. Um, a couple more. So one thing that I want to ask you also is about, and I, this is going to be one more thing that will frustrate you, but we'll try to channel our energy one more time. The thing that bothers me the most is not, well, it does bother me when racists march in the streets and so forth, but I had this idea that some people know better than other people. The New York Times knows better than other people, and they don't give two fucks because they've gone after the Clintons for 26 years. Well, that that, that is, makes me angrier. Some, but her emails is the worst thing. Some, the worst. Someday, and it will be 20 years from now, Yeah, somebody is going to do a book-length dive into how deranged the Clintons have made the institution that is the New York Times. What happened? Starting with Howell Reigns and ending with Chelsea. Who knows? I mean, if she, yeah. I mean, uh... Or Caroline, the daughter, yeah. Charlotte, you know, the granddaughter. Gene Lyons wrote a great book about Whitewater called Fools for Scandal, which is the urtext on how how the New York Times got Whitewater wrong and could get off the, you know, kept sawing the limb off. Yeah. And it didn't stop there. It started again when she ran. There is, I mean, I think it's, basically, I think it started when good old boy Hal Raines from Mississippi and Bill Clinton, good old boomer boy from Arkansas, Wanted to play King of the Hill, and Al Reigns realized that that the president's always the King of the Hill. I think I think it's that. I think there was a lot, and this is more true. I think during the Bill Clinton years of the Washington Post than it is of the the Times. I think there was a, a lot of snobbery towards these two, you know, shit kickers from Arkansas coming into our town. Right. Uh, but the, the the level of dementia and the level of of, of insanity to which the Clintons drives the institution of the New York Times to this day is an authentic phenomenon. And it is absolutely undeniable. And the people at the New York Times will cut off their own throats, will cut their own throats rather than admit it. They, they just, they know these people are crooked. They don't know how. They'll do something as stupid as getting into business with a rat fucker named Peter Schweitzer to publish his phony book. Or rat fucker there's named Vladimir no Putin. Other politi- there's no other, even the conservative Boston Herald hasn't been that crazy about the Kennedy family. No. As the New York Times has been over the Clintons. The New York Times supposedly, the bastion of liberal journalism, we're told, and this or that or whatever. All you had to do was just treat the threats accordingly. And it freaking, the, the amazing thing is it freaking carried over to Al Gore. Oh, yeah. I mean, Al Gore became an honorary Clinton. Yeah. And was subject to the subjected to the same, you know, reign of nonsense that the Clintons were. In retrospect, what was wrong with Al Gore? He was a little bit dry, and he was too smart. And he thought how he a was, smart bag. He thought he was better than us. You know, come on, please. I yeah. want a president who's and, better uh, than me. Hell yes, I Obama's mean, better as, than as me. I, as I tell, as I tell people, you know, I've had beer with I've had a beer with a lot of people. Yeah, there isn't one of them. Well, I had a beer with John Kerry once, so that's not true. Okay, but. There aren't many of them I would trust with the nuclear codes. Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't want somebody who's like me. I want somebody who knows, who respects the job and knows what he's doing and is smart enough to know when he's wrong. That's okay by me. I, I'm, a, I'm a low maintenance kind of guy. Yeah. I don't want a guy who identifies with me. I really know. I don't understand why voters do. Well, I mean, Idiot America has a lot of different things that it gets into creationism and a whole bunch of other things. But is that what we're talking about here? Is that just that? Being smart has been devalued. Oh, in this this, there is absolutely no question that, and this is something I treat at length in Indian America. Yeah, 
and I saw the Iraq War uh, as a, a terrible example of this. Yeah. There's a contempt for expertise that has infiltrated all of our all of our politics, uh, and I think it's incredibly dangerous. Tom, a guy named Tom Nichols, a conservative, has written a book called The Death of Expertise, which I have not read yet, but I've it's been recommended to me. Yep. It's kind of a more straightforward. That's more recent, right? Yeah, it's very yeah. recent. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. like three months ago. Uh, it's been recommended to me as kind of a, 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 a straight-line version of Indian America, but the same basic principle. Uh, the worst thing you could do in the Bush administration during the run-up to the Iraq War is know what you're talking about. And that's terrifying. That's absolutely and, and it's gotten worse. We've spawned a generation of terrorists as a result of killing people in the streets in exactly. Iraq and, and Afghanistan. And now you've got people running the departments of the federal government who have, were chosen specifically because they don't know what they're doing. Did you read Michael Lewis's piece about the Department of Energy? No, but I just read oh the ProPublica piece, Pro piece Carson? about Carson and HUD. Oh, read the Lewis piece, too. Well, don't, because you'll start crying. <laughs> oh my! And that's the Department of Energy controls the nukes, dude. That's that's Rick Perry, right? Yes. Yeah, we replaced a Nobel Prize-winning physicist. Yes. With the dumbest man in, in the history of presidential politics. Deliberately. And Lewis just knows how to cut to the quick. Oh yeah. my God! It's just it, I'm, I'm never going to. Is that New York piece? It was Vanity Fair. Okay, I'll look it up. Oh my God. Well, and and I just don't. Would you go, you know, I, this is the, the rebuttal that gets tossed around all the time, but it's true. I wouldn't go to a doctor. Who, I wouldn't go to Dr. Nick Riviera from The Simpsons. I want an actual doctor. Yeah, exactly right. And I, I, Why is it that politics is immune? I mean, are we going to really get to the point where expertise is devalued throughout society? or is it Oh, only sure, absolutely. Politics? What's the worst thing you can do is, is run as a politician? Yeah, I mean, the last person I know, the last person I know yeah. who ran saying, you should elect me because I'm a good politician was Birch Bayh in 1976. Oh, boy. I can't remember another guy who did that. Yeah. And I, I can't remember anybody who ran and won, but I can't remember, period, anybody who ran like that. Uh, because we don't care about expertise, and we think government is an, a foreign entity. Wow. And we think politics is the foreign, is the, you know, the, 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 the rat-swallowing serpent people that <laughs> run the foreign entity. Well, it's self-fulfilling. The people that end up running for office are Paul exactly Ryan right. and no soul You're and whatever. Exactly right. I mean, that's the deliberate. And that's deliberate. That goes back to the Reagan administration. We're yeah. going to put people in charge of these departments we don't like, who will deliberately fail, and then we can point to the departments. They're nihilists. We don't, we don't need it. Yeah. Right? Exactly. All right. So we. Uh, this is a depressing way to end. We're going to try to come up with one note of optimism. Is there sure. something that we could point to? I mean, is it? I think. I think what's going on in the streets is optimistic. I, I think, think the fact that, that we could discuss socialism without getting egged is another piece. That's of, optimistic. Did you read the New Republic piece about that? That was yeah. like two days. That was a really good one too. And I think you know I spent a week out at the public. Uh, what the hell do they call it now? The public service commission hearings. Yeah. In Nebraska, over the Keystone X line. X yeah. Pipeline. That movement is my biggest source of optimism in the country because it goes from Republican ranchers to Native Americans, yeah. to tree huggers, to nice country farm ladies who just want to sit on their porch and don't want a pipeline going through their yeah. field. And so far they've won. Yeah. They may not win ultimately. Yeah. But so far they've won. And they've won because nobody was eliminated. No, like, rancher was eliminated from the movement because he voted Republican. Nobody was asked, uh, are you a liberal? Are you a progressive? How do you feel right. about climate change 
the farmers came in because they didn't want the abuse of eminent domain. They didn't want TransCanada, thank you, running their pipeline through their field without their permission. That's a very, very powerful bipartisan message. Nobody likes the misuse of eminent domain. Nobody likes the taking of private land for public profit. That's why the reaction to the stadium. Oh, that should be the biggest galvanizer. Liberals should say, put the money to schools. Conservatives should say, why are you porking? Why is this pork money? Yeah, and that's happened in several places. Not in the nation's capital, alas. But that movement makes me incredibly optimistic. Good. Because it's not only a feel-good movement. You can feel good when you're around these people. It's had an actual impact. They've won so far. And they've won, I think, far beyond what they ever dreamed they could do. They've stopped this thing for three years. They may indeed stop it again. Who knows? But they were there, and they were the only people at these hearings. TransCanada brought professional witnesses, and that was it. There was nobody in the audience sticking up for them. And I wonder if just decoupling things from partisanship in general, like vaccines drive me completely batty. Maybe we could just get to the point where we could say, if you don't vaccinate, your kids are going to get hurt, and it doesn't matter what party you're from. Maybe we can get to the point, God forbid, where we could say climate change. If you are our CEO, climate change is going to fuck you, too. Well, the CEO seemed to believe that. Yeah. The military has done more to, to... to prepare itself for climate change in any institution. Yeah, there was in Roanoke where they were talking about the Yeah, they're going to be, I mean, they're, they're talking yeah. to the Dutch who've been dealing with sure. this for years. Sure. Uh, they're building the Roanoke, you know, I don't know, the Roanoke or, or Hampton Roads or, yeah. or Newport or whatever it is, Newport News or whatever it is. Yeah, they're building this massive thing so uh-huh. that when the seas rise, they can still have ships. Yeah. So it's not really the CEOs except the energy people. Yeah. It's not the Navy. It's not the military. It's the idiots who listen to Fox News tell them it's fake. And what you know, incentive and, and do you have? I feel like they're just what like, I say to people let, like that is, is become a tagline on the blog. Yeah. The oceans don't care who wins this argument. Right. If you win this argument in American politics and you defeat the movement to do something about climate change, the oceans don't give a fuck. They're going to flood you out anyway. You know, and, and fine, you won the argument. Very nice. You know, good luck with your seafront property in Tennessee. <laughs> That's the, to me, that's the nefarious stuff, that if you, ha- if you could organize a country by which one side says limited government and lower taxes, and the other side says, I think that we should be, have higher taxes, I think we should take care of the most vulnerable, and that was the argument, let the chips fall where they may. Right. I, I don't love high taxes either. I'd probably lean more the other way, but I get it. No, I, the I, fact I actually, that we're throwing all this other stuff in the mix, and this is, vaccine has to be weaponized, and climate change has to be weaponized, and everything. Why? Yeah, yeah. God. God, stop, please. Yeah, I mean, and, and climate change is too serious. I mean, that, We're that, all going to die! That's an existential threat we're to all gonna the die. planet, okay? If it doesn't get you with water, it's going to get you with epidemic disease. It's yeah. going to get you with endless wars. Yeah. You know, the next, the next wars aren't going to be over oil. They're going to be over water. And, you know, Africa right now is dying. It's dying from AIDS. It's dying from drought. It's dying from terrorism. And it's dying from hunger. All of which are mixed up together. Yeah. And unless somebody does something about a couple of them, letting Africa die is going to have a terrible vengeance on the rest of the world. That's just for is. sure. I mean, we had a meeting right before, uh, tragically before David was let go at Esquire, yeah. where we sat down and like planned out the next couple of years. And I was there with John H. Richardson who's another environmental nut who actually, he actually went to the tar sands in Alberta and wrote about it. Oh, wow. Uh, but David said, what are, what are the issues that we're going to be actually confronting over the next five years? And Richardson and I both at the same time said climate. I said, 
There's no second place. There's no, there's no other issue right now. No. Get ready for it or you die. Get ready for it or your way of life dies. There's no, there's no alternative to that. And we are deciding to be the, the major country who, who puts its head in the sand. You know, the, the Actively put, pulling out of Paris. I mean, that was an aggression. That put people on the moon that, you know, with the, the place where Jonas Salk discovered the polio vaccine. Yeah. We're the ones who aren't going to do, oh, aren't going to marshal our scientific and intellectual know-how to fight this problem. It's disgraceful. It's embarrassing. And it's tragic. But anyway, the, what makes me <laughs> feel best about politics right now, okay. if I had to say anything, was is the movement on the pipeline. I like it a lot. Uh, one final question, which I do at the end of every podcast, is sure. I always ask the guests for a life tip, a nugget of wisdom. So I meet you in a bar. Seems like you've been to a bar or two in your I lifetime. I have been to a bar or two. Um, yes. I say, I'm Jonah. So nice to meet you. Yeah. I'm Charlie. Nice yeah. to meet you. <laughs> and you say, this is what so I'm I all say about. you're around, first of all. That's the first thing I say. There you go. That's, uh, and that's fine. Thing I say. <laughs> uh, what's your deal? What's the Charlie mantra, whether it's serious or not serious or what have you? Mm. Could be in journalism, could be in life, could be in politics, could be in sports, could be in anything. That's a tough one. I know. I've stumped a few people with this. That's a tough one. Because I don't have one. I have several. You're allowed Uh, to do more than one if you like. No, I like. All right. The one that comes immediately to mind, just, you know, free association, is the Jesuit paleontologist Teilhard de Chardin, who said, I find God at the point of my pick, which to me always meant do the best work you can and you will find transcendence in it. Do what you were meant to do and you will find transcendence in it. And that's. That's what comes to mind immediately. And you've, you've always felt that your calling was to write words about yes. matters of relevance. Yes. I like that. That's good. And it doesn't have to be, you know, journalism is perceived as this noble cause. If you are shuffling papers, sh- make the best shuffling papers you exactly can, basically. Right. Exactly right. If, you're, you know, if, you, if you dig ditches, dig the best ditch you can and, and, and feel proud of yourself. I like it a lot. Uh, Charlie, an Thank honor, you, Jonah. a pleasure, sir. Let's get out of the sweat box. It is the sweat box, uh, and we will uh, have uh, diner food and rejoice. All right. See you later. <laughs>